Hello, hello, and welcome to Soccer Made in Portland on OregonLive.com and Stomptown Footy. My name is Chris Reifer, and joining me as always, the Timbers and Thornsby writer for the Oregonian and OregonLive.com, Jamie B. Goldberg. Jamie B., what's going on? Slow, slow uh, <laughs> news period uh, around the soccer world, yeah, huh? Yeah, not really. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a week of mixed emotions, I think. Uh, just... Yeah, I think we'll get to all of it. Obviously, I, I'm going to Orlando in two days uh, to cover the NWSL championship. It, it's always very exciting as a journalist to get to cover a championship. Uh, so that's something I'm really looking forward to. And uh, after all the Thorns coverage this season, seeing how the season potentially will end um, is, is exciting. Uh, and I, something I really enjoy through this job. At the same time, uh, I think, and we'll get to it later as well, uh, the U.S. national team's crushing defeat last night. I, I think anyone who follows soccer here in, in America uh, can't can't help but feel just a little devastated today um, over that. It, everything just feels a little bit worse off knowing that next year's World Cup is not going to feature the USA. Yeah, definitely. So all we've got going on uh, here this week is a a, a championship final. Uh, the worst day in modern U.S. soccer, uh, men's soccer history, uh, and a, a pretty intense playoff race. So, yeah, I mean, what, what do you think we should do today uh, Then, in light of all the, the free time we have on our hands? <laughs> um, should we maybe call up our friend Richard Farley and see, see, see what's going on? Uh, you know, just shoot the veritable you-know-what and, and, and just hang out for a bit? Um, I think. Yeah, I think starting with the thorns, starting with the positives uh, yes. okay. is always the best way to go. I, I like that idea. We are going to have Richard Farley uh, on the show uh, in, in just a moment. And and because we do have things going on, uh, we're going to be efficient and we're going to do things. We're going to talk about things with Richard. Uh, we're going to use him, uh, use him uh, to talk about uh, everything that's going on with the thorns from uh, from recapping uh, the semifinal win over uh, the pride to looking for looking ahead to the final uh, and much, much more. So yeah, let's talk just momentarily about our predictions and then let's get to Richard because he is the smart guy uh, around here. Uh, final score. Thorns four, Pride one. Uh, that was on uh, Saturday afternoon. Amandine Henri, uh, Emily Sonnet, Haley Rosso, and Christine Sinclair all got in on the scoring in that order. Uh, and yeah, it was a big win for for the Thorns. They did what they couldn't do last year, uh, won that home semifinal game, and now are moving on to the NWSL final. Our predictions. Uh, I think we can both hold our heads uh, reasonably high here. You called a two one win for the Thorns over the Pride. Uh, with a Megan, Megan Klingenberg assist brace. Uh, 2-1 obviously wasn't the score, but you got the win to be sure. Uh, and you got halfway there on the side bet as well. Uh, Kling did have an assist. Uh, so, you know, good call there. I called a 2-0 win uh, for the Thorns over the Pride. Uh, I said Tobin Heath was going to get an assist brace. Again, I got halfway there. Uh, she had an assist, but not the assist uh, brace. So I think as between the two of us, I, I think they're certainly respectable uh, but nothing terribly uh, outstanding. I'm going to give us both 17.92 points uh, for the really actually very similarly uh, but moderately successful predictions. Do you think that's a, a fair way to go? Yeah. Yeah, I'll take that. You'll take that. Uh, that is wonderful. And, and let's, so, so let's sort of go into uh, breaking it down then with our friend Richard Farley. We're going to just jump in here uh, with our discussion with him, and we will be back uh, a, a, after that. So... Without further ado, here is Richard. 
It is our great pleasure now to welcome to the show Richard Farley from 442. Uh, he is, uh, for for those who who follow, uh, among the, the the these more authoritative voices voices on everything women's soccer uh, around the country, and so we wanted to have him in here to talk uh, about everything, Thorns uh, from the semifinal to the final, uh, and much much more. Richard, thank you so much for joining uh, us on the show. How's it going, man? It's going great. Thanks for that great introduction. It, that was, um, I kind of gulped there for a second when you said that. That was really great. Um, I think it's, I can't remember if I was on this show before when the previous host that you inherited this from. Um, Should we say gave, his name? Over. What, what do you um, think? I don't know. It seems, it, it seems like an insult to both of you to bring up those more... Uh, <laughs> more more negative more boring just less lively times I, I, so, I love i love what you've done with the place certainly certainly more, more weather centric we're referring of course to our good friends michael Ora and kelly mclean uh we just can't say their names three times otherwise they appear um okay let's talk about uh, the thorns let's start off with the uh the thorns win over the pride in the semifinal this last weekend uh, we talked a little bit about it before we started the segment but uh let's sort of get into the nitty-gritty and, and let's start here you know, the 4-1 scoreline, let's kind of approach it this way, I guess. Do you think it was fair, or if I'm going to inject my own opinion on this, in other words, how harsh was that for the Pride? I think it was very harsh. I, I was reminded of this as you're reminded of everything that's true in the world on Twitter uh, in the moments after the game where people were talking about it as if it was a, a beatdown, and I don't feel like that at all. I felt like during the middle 40 minutes of the game that Orlando was more likely to get an equalizer than the Thorns were to go up two goals and obviously that proved wrong but I think the 2-1 scoreline uh, that we saw for most of that game was really that that felt right and credit to the Thorns for kind of putting things away at the end good teams do that but I think it really was pretty harsh on the pride to walk out of Providence Park losing by three goals. What did you think was sort of the the turning point did you think that sort of Rosso third goal uh, you know, did you think it necessarily came out of nowhere? Or did you think that there was something that the Thorns had done to kind of set that up and then to let them put the game away because of it? No, I, I don't think it came out of nowhere. I think it was kind of the natural evolution of a game where the Pride had to keep getting slightly more aggressive. Uh, I think also we saw in the middle of the first half that Tom Sermani made the adjustment to switch Marta from Megan Klingberg's side over to Ashley Sykes' side. And so that not only um, lessened her defensive responsibilities, but I think we really saw Ashley Sykes wasn't really capable of handling that matchup one-on-one. And so once the Thorns kind of got their, their minds around that and they were able to maintain more possession and eventually kind of lure, you know, pull Orlando's shape around and lure uh, them higher, I think it was almost inevitable that the Thorns would get, get a goal like that. And, um, you know, I, I, I say that 2-1 was a fair scoreline. I mean – the Thorns basically didn't allow a shot on target from open play the whole game. The only shot that the Pride had on target was off that corner kick. So I think you have to give a lot of credit to the three center backs of the team for, you know, especially in the first half, there were a couple moments where some severe cleanup needed to be done in front of goal. And in the second half, I don't think that was the case at all. One of the other talking points from the game is just that that was Tobin Heat's first start of the season. And obviously the Thorns had a lot of success without her on the field, but what what do you think she brings to this lineup and how does she maybe change the dynamic for the Thorns? Yeah, I, I guess I don't know for sure yet. You know, we have like a, well, what did she end up playing? 75 minutes on Saturday. So that's our sample size, even though she had appeared in a couple of games before that. But it is such a contrast between 
I think you would have to look at Nani Nadine being the normal starter in that position. And she's really a natural number nine, which gives him a nice target forward outlet there too. And when you have a target forward, that's kind of playing a wide striker allows them to take on the smaller fullbacks in the league. When you have uh, people like Megan Klingenberg crossing the ball, or you had Ali long play a couple of games in that position. That was just funky. Um, what we saw a lot, I, I thought was Tobin Heath's ability to draw back with her back to play, actually hold up the ball, make a pass, um, get the turn and get the team moving forward, actually being dangerous enough, dangerous enough to draw the attention of the defense. So, you know, when she did touch the ball, I don't think we saw her do anything really spectacular, although she did try to do something spectacular in the first half, but you always saw three pride players around her. And so just being able to free up Rosso, free up, um, Christine Sinclair and draw attention that Anadi and Nadim and Ali Long are just not going to do. I, I thought that was pretty evident. And so overall, I, I just, without Tobin there, they definitely are more likely to resort to being that direct team that we do see a lot. And it's nice to have that option still with Haley Rosso beating the defense without it being the thing that you have to do, play the ball directly to Nadia. Uh, Tobin can draw back and allow them to play more of a possession game. So we, you know, we had a couple questions submitted to the show over the course of the, you know, late summer, early fall. Uh, we talked about it a little bit. I, I've certainly seen some discussion on Twitter about it, uh, but I, I wanted to get your sort of perspective because we did get a fair amount of, you know, the Thorns have a good thing going. Is re- reintegrating Tobin Heath into what they have going right now sort of yeah. dangerous, or 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 what is the degree mm-hmm. of risk? What was your sort of take on that, and and? and you know, what do you think you see through the course of this, as you know, a very small sample size? What is that risk, and if any at all? Yeah, I, um, I of course, got that question from even people outside of Portland, too. People looking on, and I think nationally people thought that Tobin was done for the year. And then when she finally did come back, the Portland, uh, the Thorns were playing so well that, and Tobin hadn't made a start before the playoffs. And I think they assumed that she was going to just be in the on the bench. But, um, you know, Jamie was there with me the first day that Thor, that Tobin was made a, available to the media, and we kind of tried to probe her on it. I think we tried to, you know, give her room to say, you know, I would be happy coming off the bench, whatever role that they have for me. But even at that time, she was kind of projecting herself to be a starter. And then even long before that, Mark had made it pretty clear that, you know, it's Tobin Heath. We're going to start Tobin Heath. <laughs> so I, could, I just get the feeling that that expectation was set throughout uh, the season. And I know... You know, even leading up to the the playoffs, I think that with players like Ali Long and Nadine Nadim, the expectations were very set. Now, that's a slightly different question than what you asked. I kind of am answering how the team would react to that decision. You're asking the question that other people ask, should you mess with a good thing? And to me, I just don't know how much messing there really is. Like if Tobin goes out there and she's not really working and it isn't looking good, you've got 45 more minutes to play. Right. Um, you've got Nadia Nadim. You've got a potential extra time. Um, it's it's going to be fine. Now that's that's the floor, right? That's the worst case scenario. That hey, this just isn't working. We have to change. Which of course is a scenario that's there <laughs> in every match. Right. Right. The upside though is that you get Tobin Heath in the team. So I I guess I definitely side with things weren't. S- yeah, I, I I side with the fact that Tobin Heath is Tobin Heath. I, I think that's a good thing. To, and that's sort of what, I mean, what we would ultimately come back to yeah. as well and sort of like noting, yes, there is this sort of like hypothetical risk. But I mean, come on, this is somebody who last year was undeniably one of the two or three best players in the world. Uh, you know, you, you, you sort of have to work her back into the team 
as she's able to come back into the team and in, in 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 a starting uh in a starting role. I wanted to ask you about the, the this NWSL awards. We have the finalists <laughs> out. Uh oh, and, and I'm sure this is uh in, in fact I think I may have heard it a, a subject that makes you chuckle a bit. Uh oh. but there was a lot of talk here in the Rose City about only AD French getting sort of a nod as an individual award finalist. Do you think that that's a fair and properly sort of reflective of uh, of what the Thorns have done over the course of the season? And B, if you had to to say that some individual, because these are individual awards, uh, together with Mark Parsons, with the coach of the year and potentially Mark mm-hmm. Parsons, if you had to say who got snubbed, who would it be? Well, I guess I want to approach this first by an academic way. You know, you talk about the question that's being thrown out there on kind of on Twitter and the vindictive behind, well, you know, did the, did the thorns get snubbed? And when you really go throughout their team, it's not like I think they should really should have had more than two nominations. And so they had one. Um, you look at the attackers. None of those attackers were MVP candidates. There were no rookies that stood out. Um, we've already seen um, Menges and Klingenberg and Horan honored on the second best 11. I'm not sure you can make the case that any of them, well, two of them, you can't make the case that should have been first best 11. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm not sure that we, there's a big call to say that the Thorns were so harshly done. Um, maybe you can make the argument that Parsons should have been in the top three for coach of the year. But remember, for the first two months of the year, we were wondering when the Thorns attack was ever going to click. So there were a lot of coaches that kind of had complete campaigns, even though I think Mark did a very good job this year. Now, the obvious one here is Emily Menges. Um I graded out Emily Menges as the third best central defender in the league. There are five defenders that get nominations on on the ballot. I found it utterly inconceivable that you could find um, four other to five other defenders to put ahead of her on the ballot. I had her behind Becky Sauerbrunn and Abby Ersig from North Carolina. Ersig also didn't make the final five. And the major problem with these awards are you know, when you want people voting for awards, you want people that not only have the time and commitment to study things as much as possible, but also have to put their credibility on the line and not just vote in a way that kind of follows their passions. Like for me, I can't put a bad ballot out there because I like to tell people who I vote for. And that is a credibility point for me. So the 40% of the awards in this league are voted on by the players. They get 40% of the share. Chris, Jamie, you know, these players don't spend their free time watching games. They go do things that you and I would do if we were players, actually have a life. Uh, 20% go to the Epcot, fans. for example. Go to, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, 20% is with the fans, 20% with the coaches, 20% with the media. I think that these awards should be 50% coaches and then 50% select media. Like the media organizations should be nominating media members who have a proven track record of commitment to these awards. Otherwise, these really do come down to a popularity contest. The, 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 between the fans and the players, we have seen a bias throughout the history of these awards to where women's national team members and other members of high profile seem to have an upper hand or more likely to be some of the dubious inclusions. And, you know, for that reason, I think Emily Menges kind of got screwed. You mentioned it there there a little bit earlier in that discussion, just that the Thorns weren't the most consistent team from the beginning of the season to the very end. And we looked at the beginning, we, we weren't really sure what this team was doing, if they were going to turn it around. And then they obviously have this massive turnaround uh, towards the end of the year. What do you think was the catalyst for that? 
I think the there were a number of things that coincided, but it's the easiest easiest to describe it in terms of the formation change. So Parsons goes into the year, he's playing basically a 4-2-3-1, and things are looking a bit stagnant because a lot of that system is predicated on Tobin Heath being able to come in off the left wing and serve as an attacking midfielder while the person behind Nadia Sink is going forward and really playing as a forward. Well, you lose that, you have to play a, a completely different type of team. We saw that Sink moved up to the nine, Nadia ends up being a wide forward, and it just it didn't click the same way that last year's attack clicked. You know, at that time when Mark decides to go with uh, what he describes as a four, uh, three, four, three, I probably better describe it as a three, four, one, two formation. He pulls Sink back because Sink wasn't getting enough uh, time on the ball. He moves Lindsay Horan back. Lindsay, Hor- Lindsay Horan moves to a position where she excels as a number eight. You have Haley Rosso and Nadia Nadine playing as your most advanced attackers, and you're able to get Megan Klingenberg forward without um, without her really being dis- exploited defensively. And same thing for Ashley Sykes on the other side. And all of that also coincided with the European championships where Nadia Nadim and Dagny Brynjard-Steuter and uh, Alma Dinan-Ri go over to Europe. And during that time, Mark is able to really see and solidify that, you know, Christine Sinclair is so good in this number 10 role, we can't move her from this. Lindsay Horan is so good in this number eight role, we absolutely can't move her from this. And then when Amandine Henri comes back, then you have that triangle that the whole team can be built around. Now, subsequently, they've had to sacrifice Ali Long. And I think a lot of people were surprised when they kind of put, you know, two and two together and found out Ali Long is no longer in the starting 11. And now we see that Nadia Nadim is no longer in the starting 11. But all of those changes were kind of predicated on the shift in formation that put Sink closer to the ball, that got Lindsey Horan on the ball more. And the team has just looked so much more dangerous since. So the second half, uh, you know, you know, I mean, they, they, they've won 10 of 12. They're 10-1-1 and over the course of their last 12, including the playoff game. Uh, what do you think? I mean, if we were to sort of zoom out to maybe not even just the NWSL level, but the uh the 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 domestic league you know the american domestic league uh <laughs> women's soccer do you think this second half as opposed to sort of half seasons uh, of other teams do you think it's merely very good or do you think it's sort of on the the level of historic um i think it's very good but i don't mean that as to temper anybody's excitement about the thorns i just think that there have been some extremely excellent teams in the past in women's soccer. Um, some that I can speak to because I really didn't cover WUSA much. I was just watching that on TV like everybody else. But in WPS, um, the second year team, FC Gold Pride, had Sink and Marta on that team and had a bunch of other just extremely talented players like French International Camille Abelie was on that team. Uh, Becky Edwards was on that team. I mean, just inc- an incredible, incredible team that steamrolled the entire league. Um, and then the next year, that team basically relocates to Western New York. And, um, you know, they have Ashlyn Harrison goal and they draft Alex Morgan on that team who couldn't even start for that team. Uh, and they steamrolled the league. I mean, these are teams that just have the Thorns talent and results that transcend what the Thorns have done this year. But at the same time, I think that when you allude to the record over the last 12 games, I think what people need to realize is that I think Mark Parsons has consciously built towards this. This isn't just a run out of nowhere. 
he very meticulously planned his preseason and the first couple of the months of the year so that this team would ha- be playing its best soccer at this point of the season. I think this is very key because if you look over the history of the league, we have other teams that have had talent but didn't quite plan the same way Mark did. I think the two years that the Seattle Reign won the NWSL Shield, they weren't at their best at the end of the year, and FC Kansas City was able to take the title from them. And even this year, with Chicago being eliminated last weekend in Cary, North Carolina, you saw their coach, Rory Dames, admitting that his team just physically wasn't there at this point of the season. They they didn't manage the season well. Well, credit to him for admitting that, but I think if you caught Mark in an honest moment, he would probably admit that the troubles that we saw early in the season were part of not only Tobin Heath being out and him needing to adjust, but him pacing himself so or him pacing the team so when they reach this point in the season, they would be better than the standings tell. I think that the Thorns are the best team on Saturday, but because of the way that Mark managed the season, I don't think a lot of people are going to see it that way. Obviously, the Courage have had an incredible season as well, uh, and they are the defending uh, NWSL champions um, from last year. In terms of the tactical matchup between these two teams, what are you expecting, and how do they kind of match up against each other? Oh, boy. How much time do you guys have here? Because this is just so compelling. Because last year, what really killed the Thorns against this team when they were the Western New York Flash was the tactical matchup. Um they had. They were starting last year, Jessica McDonald, who everybody in Portland should know and remember fondly, and Lynn Williams as their forwards, two very physical, quick forwards who love to press, and they just tormented Emily Menges and particularly Emily Sonnet. And then when Allie Long would drop back to form a three in the back and the team would try to move the ball, Sam Mewes is somebody that just eats up space and can replay as well as any midfielder in the league. And it was just a terrible matchup because – the flash, Paul would have two on two with those center backs at the back. Um, Mark would either have to keep his fullbacks back, which then inhibited play, or drop Lindsey Horan back to help connecting. And it just ended up bunching up the thorns in their own defensive third. Well, this year, the flash turned into the courage. They're playing much the same way. Ashley Hatch is now starting for Jessica McDonald, but you're talking about two forwards that are quick, fast, physical, are going to press. But Mark has developed a system, has put in a system that has three at the back, has two holding midfielders. They're perfectly capable of kicking the ball around, especially with Lindsey Horan there. And I think what has to be really encouraging is what happened in last year's final. We saw the flash. They were so explosive at Providence Park, scored four goals over 120 minutes. And then they go to the final in Houston against Washington. And Jim Gabara, Washington's coach, for the first time all year, switches from a 4-3-3 to a 3-5-2. And the result is that Western New York is absolutely just stymied. They are locked up the whole match. They need a last-ditch goal in a regulation to force overtime. It goes to penalty kicks. They win on penalty kicks. But Jim Gabara absolutely won the tactical battle. North Carolina came into this season. They acquired a third center back so they could go to a, a matching three-center back system whenever anybody did that to them. But that center back, um, a Japanese international named Yuri Kawasoma, she blew up her knee in the second month of the season. And the team has been locked into different versions of a 4-4-2 ever since. So I think that this system that Mark has implemented really, really bodes well for the Thorns on Saturday. Well, this is probably then going to be a little bit anticlimactic, but uh, we uh, always, you know, issue a prediction where we predict uh, score and then also one other sort of side bet, right? So you predict the score of the game and then something else that's going to happen, whether it's a goal score, a red card, anything crazy uh, that you want. I'm going to make you do that and then we'll come back and, and like give you points 
uh, <laughs> next week after the game. Uh, but yeah, I, I want your prediction. I want you to put it down on, you know, internet paper uh, and, and, <laughs> and, and, and let us know what you think is going to happen. So I'm, I'm basing a lot of this off of the game that the two teams played at Providence Park in the middle of the year, which was, I think, the second or third game where Mark's new formation um, came out. And yeah. the Thorns won it one to nothing. And it was um, not a dominant victory, but it was a controlling one. And I think that this it's going to be a very similar game, except for there's going to be a level of desperation from the courage at some point in this game that is commensurate with the stakes. So I think the final score is either going to be um, two nothing Thorns where they get a late goal after holding a one nothing lead for most of the game, or it will be um, two, two, one where the thorns got their second goal in the 60th or 70th minute. And the courage pulled one back with the thorns, just getting a little lackadaisical in like the 84th or 85th minute. Um, so I, I'm pretty confident in the thorns, although, you know, this really is a matchup where if the thorns play badly and make mistakes, I mean, this should go without saying, but the courage have, seven international caliber players and a, three or four others that are just on the cusp of breaking into the women's national, the U S women's national team. There is no margin for error against this team. Um, and as far as unique predictions, <laughs> um, geez, how about this? I think Christine Sinclair will have a goal and an assist. Oh, okay. That's, I mean, that's very not, good. That's not, I, I, hopefully I, instead of being unique, I can be specific. Yeah, there, no, that, that's, 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 to, that's totally a like acceptable, uh, an, an acceptable side bet. Uh, what I heard from you there though, is that you think the team that scored 49 points through 24 games in the regular season is actually pretty good. Is that, is that a fair <laughs> thing to say? Yes, I think that is <laughs> a thing to say. I think that, um, I think that both of these teams are very good and both of these teams would be, favorites heading into uh last year's final definitely most of the finals this league have had has had i would say these teams well most is difficult because they've only been four other finals <laughs> right but i think that these two teams are as good as any teams in nwsl history do, do you think it's fair to just sort of go off that do you think it's fair for folks to say this could be you know, one of the more highly anticipated uh, domestic matchups in in the history of the various domestic leagues? I think, um, yeah, I think that's fair because in WPS, the last two matchups involved uh, Paul Riley's expansion team that was really not regarded very highly. So in that way, it was kind of a surprise. The first year of that league saw a really low-seeded team make a run all the way to the finals and then upset um, Marta's soul team. This one, you have the defending champions against the not only what a lot of people think is the most talented team in the league in the Thorns, but definitely the highest profile uh, team, maybe the highest profile women's team in the world. Um, I think if anybody knows the subplots here too, uh, you know, with Paul Riley going up against his former team, that'll never get old considering how some Thorns fans have just gone crazy about him. Um, and just the talent on both teams. I think people are going to look back at the box score of this game and just be like, wow, there are so many names involved in this game. And I, I hope people watch it because it's both teams play a good brand of soccer too. Well, thank you so much, Richard, for coming on the show and, and helping us get ready uh, for this, this game. I, I think, yeah, I'm going to jump on that bandwagon too, saying 
Uh, <laughs> one of the more highly anticipated, uh, certainly for me, but I'm like totally biased. Uh, but I, even from a neutral perspective, uh, an extremely highly anticipated game. Uh, this is as good as you, you can hope for, I, I think, from a final. Yeah. And so uh, we very much appreciate your insights, not only on the, on the Thorn season, but uh, in getting ready for that as well. Yeah. Can I come back on the show sometime and ask you two questions? Because... You- <laughs> You two know as much about this as I do, and I know you, you know these podcasts have this format where you bring a guest on, you pretend like they're an expert, but come on, let's be real. You guys know as much about this as I do. <laughs> oh, come on. Uh, I don't think there are very many people that do know mo- as much ab- uh, about it as you do, but nonetheless, yes, that sounds like a fun little bit of turnabout. Uh, so we <laughs> will do that so, uh, sometime soon. All right, Richard, cool. thank you so much for stopping by, uh, and, and, and we'll uh, see you again very, very soon. Yeah, thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Chris. Big thanks once again to Richard for coming on the show. That is Richard Farley of 442, uh, who does uh, some of the best work both uh, on the NWSL side and uh, on the MLS side. Uh, Outstanding uh, reporter for an outstanding publication. Um, Thorns v. Courage, that is Saturday, 1.30 uh, on Lifetime. Anything else we feel like we need to hit uh, about Thorns v. Courage, or do you think that conversation with Richard pretty uh, pretty well covered it? Yeah, uh, we we hit a lot in, in that conversation. I, I don't think there's all that much more to hit. Obviously, um, he touched on the, the kind of rede- revenge redemption angles uh, with Paul Riley uh, being the former Thorns coach. Also, there's a few uh, former Thorns players on that team: Jessica McDonald, McCall Zerboni, and of course, this is the team that uh, ousted the Thorns last year in the semifinals. So I kind of like. Uh, with all the tactical stuff, all, all the on-field stuff we're looking at, the talent, the personnel, it's also fun that there's a, you know, a little bit other of redemption, revenge storyline that uh, adds to this as well. Yeah, and there are, I mean, just tons of storylines. You talk about somebody uh, in McCall, McCall Zerboni, who was a pretty controversial player uh, when she was here in Portland, having an absolutely career year this year, getting some shouts uh, for some that she should be sort of best 11 quality, has been a backbone uh, of this extremely good Thor, uh, Courage team over the course of the season. Um, Jess McDonald has not featured quite as much for uh, the Courage uh, as she did for the Flash last year, uh, but nonetheless has still been sort of an impact uh, attacker off the bench. And yeah, you're you're not hurting for narratives coming in into this final. I mean, this really is one of those games where it's it's so rare where a final just has so many sort of like different layers of the onion. And on top of all of that, you have unquestionably, and and I underscore unquestionably, the two best teams in the league. That's pretty cool. Uh, and, and, and it's pretty rare when you have a playoff system that you get sort of that aligning of the stars in that order uh, for, you know, a game as big as this. So uh, it's obviously big here in Portland because Portland's in it. Uh, this is a big soccer game. Period. I mean, you, you don't need to put any any other qualifiers on it uh, anywhere you go. This is a big game uh, in, in American soccer, and so if you need something to to, to forget the disappointment of this last week, uh, I, I can't order you up something a whole lot better than this game. Uh, it's pretty exciting. Uh, as far as you, can you remember being sort of as excited for you know a game and and, and the stories around it and all of that, or having a, a more sort of profound game with all the stories around it than than this one this coming weekend? Yeah, not not at the at the club level, especially in women's soccer. I mean, obviously, when you look at the World Cup a few years ago, 2015, just the, the fact that they hadn't won since 1999, there was just so much excitement around the USA uh, being able to win that title. Um, but at the club level, I, I mean, I uh, didn't get the opportunity to cover the WPS, though I followed it and, and as 
Richard was talking about earlier, I, I didn't get the chance to cover the WSA either. Uh, so there might be some things that I, I'm just missing. But as, as NWSL goes, I, I don't think there's been a, a game with this much buildup that with this exciting uh, leading into it uh, in the league so far. So I, I'm really looking forward to this one. I'm hopeful that even though it's at a neutral venue in Orlando and, and Orlando won't be playing in the game, that they'll get some good fan support out there, a uh, good viewership on Lifetime. Because this is a really big game. And I think I said today in the article I wrote, if you want to watch elite soccer in the United States, you better be tuning into this one. Um, and added bonus, if you want to watch players that, you know, make it to the World Cup, there's two World <laughs> Cup champions, I believe, that'll be on the field. I think seven others that competed in the Women's World Cup in 2015 as well. Kind of a little shot that they that you work in there uh, <laughs> on the men's side. Completely deserved shot, by the way, but but a, a shot nonetheless. Uh, well, let's let's hit one more topic here, sort of on an impromptu basis, uh, and that is the quality of the lifetime broadcast. Lifetime, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people when uh, when Lifetime was brought on board, that was a little bit of an outside the box television partner uh, for NWSL. Uh, we now have sort of a, a year of experience with Lifetime, uh, with the product that they've put out for NWSL. What have, you, have your sort of impressions been of Lifetime in year one uh, for the league? Good overall, bad overall, uh, or, or somewhere in between? What do you think? Yeah, I, I think it's been overall good. I, I think it's good to have a consistent broadcast partner that that is showing the thorns, ever, or not just the thorns, of course, uh, showing the NWSL every single Although week. Although kind of just the thorns. Yeah, they did show <laughs> it a lot seemed of like a time. Games, to be fair. Um, but, I, but I think it's important for the league to have a consistent broadcast partner, and they, they weren't getting that with Fox. And um, this is, I, I think, financially more viable for them. I, I think the partnership with Lifetime along with go 90 has been a little bit more of a hiccup. I, I think go 90 has been not the greatest streaming service, although they are paying a rights fee, which has been a big reason why I think this was a good deal overall for the NWSL. But I think there's been some major hiccups with that. I think streaming in general has been a, a bit of a problem. I, I don't think it's enhanced the media quite to the degree that they the, the NWSL kind of claimed when they when they said they were starting uh, that Lifetime was coming in and, and having a stake in the league and they were going to develop the NWSL media um, and enhance the website and all of that. Um, I, I think there's definitely been hiccups um, with that. But overall, even though Lifetime's not a traditional uh, broadcast partner, I, I think the games I've watched, I, I think overall the coverage has been pretty, pretty decent. And, and the fact that it's every week, I, I think is a step forward for the league. You know, and I just want to touch on that last point. I've been really impressed relative to my expectations about the the quality of the production value uh, of the production they're putting on for, for these weekly games. Uh, I think the commentary has been by and large, very good, uh, as good as we've seen uh, in, at the NWSL level, save for when ESPN would parachute in parachute in once in a while uh, over the course of, of the last few years uh, and, and would typically do, you know, sort of their ordinary good job. I've been very pleased. I, I was I really didn't know about that going into the season, how the production value would be on Lifetime, uh, you know, and, and my take was. Well, it's good they're getting paid for it, uh, but we'll see what the product is. And, and I think overall that product from Lifetime has been very, very good. Uh, and I think the the ratings uh, at the end of the day uh, have certainly at least met or, or maybe even exceeded in, in some instances expectations uh, relative to NWSL. So I think that's a very positive thing 
uh, for the league. It's been kind of an up and down, frustrating year for the league as a whole. But if you want to take away uh, one, to me, unambiguous positive, it is uh, the partnership that, they, that they've made with Lifetime. I think that's been good for both parties. Uh, I agree with you on, on Go90. That has been sort of the thorn in the side when it comes to uh, the media rights stuff in the TV deal. Uh, and and that is something that, that they need to continue addressing because, look, I mean, Lifetime probably isn't going to be a whole lot more than one game a week uh, any time in sort of the near or immediate future. Uh, and so they need to have a consistent quality streaming platform in order to get games out to uh, people and, and simply to get eyeballs on the league. Uh, and they didn't always have that this year, and that's a problem. Uh, even if it is, you know, good on some level that Go90 is giving them money, uh, that's something that certainly needs to improve. But as far as what Lifetime's done, I, I think it's hard to find uh, a negative word to say uh, uh, about what Lifetime has done over the course of the season. Okay, I think that's the end of our Thorns coverage. We sort of flipped the show today. Uh, Thorns up top because hashtag priorities, uh, and then Timbers. There, there hasn't been a whole lot going on, but we we do have a number of Timbers things. Uh, a few at least to hit uh, before we move on to the, the topic that we've sort of talked around a number of times the national team. But first, let's start with the Timbers. Uh, Caleb Porter's press conference was yesterday. He seemed like he was in a pretty good mood uh, or a good-ish mood. But there was, I think the big, uh, the, the big thing sort of coming out of it is that it sounded, frankly, like he wasn't going to be wild uh, about giving injury updates, although not necessarily for the, the reason that you ordinarily impute to that, which is, oh, he wants to be coy. It's that he mostly just doesn't doesn't know. It sounds like. Do you think that's an accurate characterization of uh, of Caleb's position on on the injury update thing? And what can we infer from that uh, about anything, if anything at all? Yeah, I think he's what. Obviously, the one injury update was about Fernando Adi. Everyone wants to know if he can play this weekend. I, I think that Caleb probably has an idea of whether or not he's going to play this weekend. But he's kind of been burned uh, again and again this season saying Liam Ridgewell is going to come back. Fernando Audi is going to come back. This player, there's been other players as well where he's given a timeline. Obviously, I've, I think I'm the main person that then immediately puts that online. And he's given a timeline and it hasn't turned out to be accurate. So um, I, I think his... I thought process now is, you know, I, I'm just not going to give a timeline. I'm not going to say something and turn out to be wrong. I, I don't want to tell the fans the wrong thing. Uh, it's, it's kind of surprising how often this has happened this season. And obviously the Timbers parted way with their uh, head trainer earlier in the year. Um, they bumped up the T2 trainer, it, but you does raise some questions around that. Why are these timelines changing so much it, to the point where Caleb's coming out and saying, He'll be in the game this weekend or he'll he'll be back in two weeks and, and a month down the road, you were asking the exact same questions. So um, it's interesting. We're going to this game a little blind. We won't know if Fernando Adi is going to feature in it. I think it's very, very unlikely he would start, but um, maybe Caleb said he did say he's getting better and would play before the end of the season whatever that means. Um, so maybe he'll feature off the bench, but I don't really think we have a clear picture and I, I don't think Caleb wants to give us a picture that could be wrong. Yeah, it is. You know, I definitely think this is something and, and look, I, I, I sort of take Caleb at his word. I don't disbelieve him at all that you know, the information that he's had, uh, you know, and many times he's sort of passed along to us and, and it's just turned out to be wrong and that he hasn't been trying to mislead anybody and that he just feels like he hasn't gotten, you know, the information that, he ha that he's received just for whatever reason hasn't turned out to be to be accurate. Uh, 
Um, and that's, you know, that's a big problem. Look, I mean, you know, on one level, injuries happen, right? And and you're going to have in any season, any even when you have good luck, you're going to have a number, you know, a, a number of injuries through the course of the season. And when that happens, what coaches are going to want, and, and at least what they're going to want internally, is a pretty clear picture and, and a pretty reliable picture of when they're going to be able to get those guys back on the field. Uh, it's clear uh, through the various things with Ridgewell, through uh, through Fernando Adi, through any number of other ones that we've had over the course of this year that that hasn't really been happening. And they've been having injuries linger and drag out. They've been having in- injuries recur. Uh, they've been having uh, injuries become exacerbated. They've been having, uh, you know, I mean, one game back for Liam Ridgewell, and then he's back on the shelf for another few weeks. Uh, and that's just exactly what you don't want. Uh, when you when you're a team and, and and from what you want from your medical staff, from your training staff, and to a certain extent from your sports science staff, and so uh, I think this is something the Timbers are really going to have to look at over the course of the offseason. I think it goes much much deeper uh, than parting than simply parting ways with Nick Wald. That is a bigger team than just that uh, that's going to need to be looked at. I don't have enough nearly enough information from the outside to be able to say. It is, you know, this person's fault or this person's fault or this person should be uh, should, should be fired or that person should be fired. I have no idea. Uh, but it is clear from the outside, just based on what we've seen, based on these timelines going over and over and over and over again, based on the, the this myriad of injuries, that there is there is a there there. Uh, and the Timbers need to figure that out in the offseason uh, and, and make something change uh, in order to make it so that they're not doing this every single year, as they did last year and as they have done this year, that it stops uh, at, at that. Do you think that's too hot to go in on the issue, or do you think that's that's sort of a, a just fair take at this point? Yeah, I, I think it is. I, I think the injuries ha- have been a problem for the last two years. I, I think specifically this year the timelines have been a major issue. There, there are players that uh, – heal differently to certain injuries, but you need a medical staff and you need a, a group, not just one person, like you said, that that's going to be able to work with this specific individual and figure out what the timeline is and what they need to do to get that player back on the field. Um, this has been more of an issue this year than it should have been. And the fact that Porter seems a little bit blind in, in what's going on with this team from the medical side is a real problem. So I do think that needs to be a priority for them to look at uh, in the offseason and going next year. More immediately, the Timbers against D.C. United. That's going to be Sunday at 4.30 at Providence Park. Uh, one of two games at Providence Park to finish out the 2017 uh, regular season. Uh, for the Timbers, it, it, there is one very clear playoff uh, scenario leading into this game and then a whole bunch of very unclear ones. Uh, if the Timbers win, they will clinch the playoffs. They will be in the playoffs uh, no questions asked, uh, and there's no way to take that away from them. Certainly that is the goal against DC United, a team that is well out of the running has been for some time. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, if the Timbers win, they make it very easy on themselves and all of us. It, there are so many different possibilities if they don't win, that it's a little bit hard to go down. And basically if the Timbers draw, I think it's fair to say they might clinch. I, I don't know if I would say it's likely. I wouldn't say it's particularly likely, but I wouldn't say it's particularly unlikely. I think there's a decent chance uh, that the Timbers would end up uh, clinching the playoffs if they only get a point from Sunday. Uh, but, you know, I, I mean, it, it is complex because there are essentially right now three teams that are angling with Houston now going final and winning over Sporting Kansas City. There are now basically three teams vying for that last playoff spot. 
Uh, and so you can sort of tr- try to chart out a- as to how those three re- teams' respective results would go, how the- it would affect the Timbers. But nonetheless, you can take away with some comfort now that if they draw, it's up in the air. If the Timbers lose, they probably don't clinch, but it is only a probably. Uh, if all of those three teams were to lose as well as the, the Timbers, if RSL, uh, San Jose, and Dallas were to all lose on the weekend and the Timbers were to lose, they would still nonetheless clinch. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I, I, I think that would be little comfort uh, for the Timbers in dropping three very important, very attainable points. And the reason I say important is, look, if the Timbers want any chance at a top two spot, which with SKC's loss tonight is now a pretty viable possibility, SKC now is only one point ahead of the Timbers. They're even on uh, on games played. So nobody has any more games in hand. This is why games in hand are kind of a thing uh, and, and why you can't necessarily rely on points from them because as SKC knows from tonight, Sometimes you lose them. Uh, SKC has uh, a return trip against or a return game against Houston in Kansas City uh, on the weekend. But then in the last week of the year, they go to visit an RSL team that A, has absolutely no love for sporting Kansas City uh, and and B, is very much in, in sort of a fight for their own playoff lives and very likely will be heading into that final uh, final round of the regular season. So that is not an easy road game for SKC. SKC is not a great road team. Uh, they've only won twice on the road uh, throughout the course of the year. They just lost to Houston, and it was a highly, highly uh, weakened Houston team that they, they, they just lost to this evening. And so uh, if the Timbers went out, I think based on this SKC-Houston result tonight, I think they probably now have a better than even shot uh, at going up and, and, and grabbing the, that second seed uh, if the Timbers can both beat DC United and Vancouver uh, the the weekend that follows, but nonetheless they have to do all those things, uh, and that very much remains to be seen. Um, let's take this uh, from a question from Tom because I think this gets a little bit down the road, but it is nonetheless an interesting question uh, looking down the road, and that is without Adi, if the Timbers don't have Adi or at least don't have Adi back in sort of a starting capacity uh, by the playoffs. Do you think the Timbers really have the manpower for a meaningful playoff run? Uh, or will it be sort of a, a short visit to the postseason uh, if they are still starting Darren Maddox uh, when, when it comes time? Yeah, I think it's going to be difficult if they're still starting Maddox. I, I just don't think, and we've talked about it, Maddox can consistently find the back of the net and produce goals like the Timbers will need him to. Now, of course, if, if Sebastian Blanco starts getting hot, he scored a goal may, in the last game against San Jose. Maybe that's the spark he needs to start getting hot. And Diego Valeri, uh, who ended his goal-scoring streak, but obviously has been scoring consistently for the Timbers in Audi's absence, if, if he can pick that back up in the postseason, I think the Timbers still have a chance, but it's really relying on other players in the attack to pick up more slack than they normally would have to in, in if this lineup was fully healthy. I, I just don't think the Timbers can rely on Maddox to be that guy that steps up and finds goals when they need need him to. Maybe he's the guy that helps create chances, helps draw PKs, helps do things like that. And I think we've seen a little bit of that in the last few weeks. But he is not a consistent goal scorer, at least with what he's shown from the timber for the Timbers. So I think it's difficult there. And I think the defense the Timbers need to find a way to solidify this back line. I, I think the fact that they're continuing to make changes on the back line is worrisome. That's something you want a setback for, particularly going to playoffs. You don't want to be making changes back there. And, and we saw what can happen when that back line is not at the level it needs to be in this last game. So I think to along with 
it being difficult without Audi in the attack, the Timbers would need to be in a position and they need to put themselves in the position this next two games where, where their defense is working and where they're effective, where the relationship between Mabiala and Ridgewell is helping the Timbers um, keep clean sheets or, or limit goals and the outside backs are, are consistent and we have a consistent back four back there. So I think there's some questions for the Timbers to work out in the next two games and without Audi, it's going to be tough no matter what. I think we talked about this last week, but uh, am I accurate in saying our unanimous opinion between the two of us uh, is that Vitas at left back is is the way to go at left back. And then uh, as between Ridgewell and Miller, I think you can make arguments, but we both agree that Caleb Porter will choose Liam Ridgewell at left center back, uh, regardless yes. of what he does at left back. Yes, I, I think that's uh, where we landed. Um, I, that's absolutely what I, I think. I, I think that Miller is the one that's going to head to the bench and he's had a great year for the Timbers and he's been more than a depth piece and he's very important to where, to getting them to where they are. But I, I think that's just with the personnel that they have when all those players are healthy. I just think that's the way it's going to have to be. And hey, look, you know, I mean, it's not like entirely out of the question that Liam Ridgewell is going to get hurt at some point along the way. Or <laughs> I say that. <laughs> right, or or uh, honestly, I mean, you know, there may be times, especially if the Timbers don't take one of those top two spots uh, where they have a midweek game where they've got to play a, a midweek elimination round game and then have a quick turnaround uh, for the if they win for the first round of the next round. And you may say during one of those games, hey, we don't really want to push Ridgewell or we don't really want to push, you know, one of these guys for all three of those, you know, basically a three game and seven day kind of turnaround. And you can feel pretty darn good, I think, if you want to say, you know what, we're going to put in Roy Miller for a game uh, and, and proceed that way and feel good with how consistent he's been at that left center back spot. So, you know, I mean, it doesn't even necessarily require uh, that Ridwell get hurt in order to see Miller at some point even playing a, a significant role uh, in the postseason. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, uh, the, that is, uh, w- with respect to Vitas, the way I think it should be, uh, and with respect to Miller I, I, Miller versus Ridwell at left center back, I, I think that's just the likely way it will be uh, where Ridwell will get the, the lion's share of the calls at that spot. Um, okay, let's talk about the national team, shall we? Uh, we're going to take this. So uh, ordinarily we have, you know, our mental notes that, that we go off of to, to give us, uh, some structure. I actually kind of wanted to take this, uh, in a little bit more free flowing discussion, uh, about the national team, the men's national team in particular, uh, losing two one at Trinidad, uh, and, and then because of results, uh, between Panama and Costa Rica and Honduras and Mexico, uh, with Honduras and Panama winning those respective games, uh, the U S is out. They're not going to the World Cup in in Russia. Uh, You know, that's not good. Uh, It is the first time since 1986 uh, that the U.S. will not make a World Cup, has not qualified for a World Cup out of CONCACAF. Uh, And yeah, so we're going to be watching the World Cup uh, sort of from a sort of neutrals perspective next next season. What were your some sort of your, your key thoughts coming out of that? Was it about, you know, who needs to go? Was it about structural changes that need to happen in U.S. soccer? Uh, or, or was it about, you know, players that just didn't show up and, and, and make it happen? What were, uh, what was, I, I guess, your sort of top takeaway from the capitulation that we saw down in Trinidad last night? Yeah, uh, I think I had a lot of those emotions uh, heading out of that game. I, I think that the personnel didn't show up. I, I think I think there's a lot of questions about the personnel that the national team has been using through this uh, World Cup qualifying quest. Uh, I, I think 
they've used players, especially towards the beginning of it, that that were on the older end that you didn't necessarily see making a massive impact in Russia next year, assuming they qualified. I, I think there was questions about what players were they were really trying to gear up for the World Cup. And I think that changed throughout. And obviously there was a coaching change in there um, that that led to some inconsistency. I, I think last night the players just didn't show up in Trinidad Tobago and there was too much complacency going in against a poor Trinidad team. Obviously the field was bad, but that's absolutely no excuse to lose to a, a team of that level. This U.S. national team had enough talent to qualify. They they absolutely should have qualified. And yet they found ways to start games poorly, to make mistakes, to, to not come out with the right attitude. And the coaching decisions, I think, throughout this um, final round of qualifying can easily be questioned. So I, I think you start there. And then you just look at the coach. You look at this program up and down the ranks. I, I think that there has to be some serious changes going into the next three or four years as they gear up for 2022. I, I think, first of all, they need to look towards the future. And some of these players that are the end of their careers, there's no reason to be con- to continuing to call these players back in when you're not kind of gearing up for 2022. I, I think they need to look at younger players. I, I think they need to look at their young talent and, and see what players they really believe are going to be part of that system and try to enter in that in 2022 and try to integrate them early into the senior level and give them experience playing against the best competition they can. I think you also just have to look at the coaching staff at every age group from the youth levels to the national team. I I think I'd be surprised if arena is the one who sticks around after this uh, massive disappointment. But I, I don't think it's just the senior national team. You look at the U23s, they haven't qualified for the Olympics in the last two cycles. You need something to change at, at multiple levels in the national team. And I, I think you also want to look at the entire youth development system uh, from from the grassroots up to the, the senior team. So there's a lot to look at. I, I don't think you necessarily blow everything up. This team was good enough. To, to qualify, there was a lot of just mistakes, uh, coaching mistakes and, and complacency from the team along the way. But there has to be some serious changes and, and they have to start now to evaluate the entire program and get themselves ready as quickly as possible for 2022 so this won't happen again. Are you Sunil out? Gulati out? Yeah, I, I think I am. I, I think... This is the kind of stuff where you change leadership, even even if it's not completely Sunil's fault. I I think this is this is the biggest disappointment in in memory for for U.S. soccer, and I, I think you have to make serious changes and, and look not just at the coaching staff, but look at who put the coaching staff there, who um who's been running U.S. soccer, and I think this is the situation. Now you have more than four years till the next world cup, you make the changes now and you start rebuilding this program uh, in putting out specific uh, benchmarks that you want to hit and specific things you want to do now. So that gearing up into the next round of qualifying, they they're in a completely different spot than they are now. So um, it might not be all, I, I it might not be all his fault. It might not be all arena's fault, but I think you have to make changes in when this kind of stuff happens. 
Right. I, I definitely think this is a situation where you've got more than enough responsibility to go around. I do think Gulati uh, bears quite a lot of it, especially as it goes to with the way the men's team has been managed over the course of the last four years. Uh, look, I mean, it, 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 what the, the most damning thing for me and the thing that I, I think is, uh, is most shocking is, uh, you know, is that we were well into 2016 and Jurgen Klinsmann, when he was still there, was still rolling out Jermaine Jones, was still rolling out Demarcus Beasley. Frankly, the way qualifying has gone, I think you have to note, was still rolling out Tim Howard, was still relying on Clint Dempsey, not as sort of a, a complimentary bench uh, veteran piece, but, but rather as a, a primary piece of the attack. Uh, and I think there were huge, huge problems with that. Demarcus Beasley was not going to be the starting left back in Russia, period. Jermaine Jones was never, ever, ever, ever realistically going to be part of the central midfield in Russia. Why in the world was, were, was the national team still rolling him out on a consistent basis in meaningful games rather than getting guys like Dax McCarty in there who could have been? Uh, somebody, somebody like that in Russia, rather than getting Kellen Acosta in, in there a year earlier, uh, who very much looked like now could have been uh, a, a part of that central midfield in, in Russia. Why wasn't Jorge Villafania being called in earlier? Why wasn't Greg Garza being called in earlier? Uh, why were those starts still going to veterans that had no future in sort of the, the, the crown jewel uh, of the competitions that the, U, that the U.S. tries to play in uh, when we could have been sort of going through this process? Uh, of of building toward Russia, starting what as it should have started immediately after Brazil. Look, I think there were a lot of people, myself included, that were very critical of not taking Landon Donovan, Landon Donovan to Brazil, and I still am. I think he should have been on that team. But if immediately after Brazil they had said, Landon, you know what? It's time for your testimonial, buddy. That would have made complete sense to me because he never was going to be part of the team in Russia. And I just don't understand why. The, why Sunil Gulati allowed us to go basically three years, three years with the national team post-Brazil, basically not looking to Russia at all, or at least not looking to Russia with any sort of like realistic view. Because they, I, I know there were statements like, oh, yeah, you know, we think Jermaine could still be a part of the, a part of the setup uh, in, in Russia. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? That guy's going to be close to 40 by the time Russia rolls around. You really think he's going to be part of your central midfield? Uh, he's a good player. He, he has been a good player for the national team. But it was insane that they let themselves be diluted, and that Sunil, uh, that Gulati allowed Klinsman to be diluted over the course of multiple years leading up to a World Cup qualifying uh, schedule, that he was going to be part, and, and that many of those players were going to be part of the team going forward. And, and when you have that going on, when, you ha- when you've prematurely given a, a coach an extension, and you allow a coach to go multiple years and to cut into your World Cup qualifying, uh, qualifying schedule, uh, by making a series of decisions that have absolutely no bearing uh, on the long-term health and, and, and on the World Cup readiness uh, of the squad, that ultimately boils down to being Gulati's responsibility. He was, he was the guy that needed to pull the plug on that and say, no, we need to be more forward-thinking about this, and he didn't do it, period. Plain and simple. He was late to fire Klinsman. When he finally did, uh, his hands were tied. I still think Bruce Arena was probably about the only realistic or reasonable uh, hire they could have made at that point because they had basically no time to bring somebody in and get them familiar with, uh, w- with, the, with the squad, get them familiar with CONCACAF, uh, and, and to put together uh, the rest of, of the World Cup qualifying campaign. So I think Arena was 
probably the only realistic choice. Maybe pull somebody out of, out of MLS. Maybe pull Peter Vermees uh, from Sporting Kansas City. But I don't know if he would have done that, uh, just given the nature the nature of the job. And so, you know, I mean, the arena selection was the arena select was was what it was because Gulati waited so long. And look, you know, I mean, you got to also look at Bruce. <laughs> Bruce did a good job through about the first six months or even nine months or so uh, of getting the ship more or less righted. Uh, it looked for a long time like the U.S. was actually going to sa- relatively sail uh, to World Cup qualification. I think if you if we talked about this in the summer. We would have said, yeah, it looks pretty darn good. The U.S. has a pretty easy schedule going forward. The one tricky game may be that one where, where Costa Rica comes to town. But it's a home game. You should absolutely win it. Uh, and, and if that happens, the, the U.S. is off to the races. And that's what we would have said last summer. And if that had happened, if things had gone as they had uh, over the course of the first six or nine months of, of Arena's tenure, uh, I think it would have been very much mission accomplished for what he was being asked to do as a glorified caretaker manager, then it all fell apart. And that's on him. I mean, he can't blame anybody else for that, right? Uh, he can't blame anybody else for the fact that Fabian Johnson fell so tragically uh, out of form that he was just entirely out of favor. Look, Fabian Johnson is, is, when he's in form, one of the U.S.'s three best players. No question about it. And he fell so out of form that he wasn't even in the team for this last round of, of qualifiers. Frankly, that's not something that, that Bruce Arena can look to Urien Klinsman at uh, about. That is, in large part, uh, on him. That never should have happened. He never should have allowed Johnson to fall that far out of favor with the national team, given how important he is. And so, you know, and that is just sort of one example uh, of things. I, I think there were a number of tactical things that Bruce did over the course of the, this last month or so that were not good. And obviously that approach in Trinidad was horrible. The way the team played in Trinidad was just embarrassing. That wasn't even Trinidad's A team. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? That was a team that had three, three points in World Cup qualifying in the previous nine games. That's not good. Remember how we talked about the Courage and the Thorns being really good because they had lots of points from a, from a relatively few games? Three points from nine games is bad. That's really bad. And going to Trinidad, I don't care if you're playing on the beach. I don't care if you're playing on gravel. You've got to win that game. And it's ridiculous that they went down there and that Bruce wasn't able to put out a team, wasn't able to put out a team with an approach to go at least get a draw. Give me something. Give me a draw uh, out of Trinidad. And if they had, we wouldn't be at this point today. So, yeah. Does Gulati be a responsibility? Yeah. Should Gulati be out? Absolutely. Should should Arena be out? Of course, because he's a glorified caretaker and he didn't get the job done. So, I mean, that's easy. And and the the question for me over the course of the day has been the extent to which... We sort of look at this, is this a short-term problem that manifested in, in this, this blow-up? Or are there sort of longer-term issues that need to be addressed in, in sort of a course-changing way? And I think, you know, I mean, I, I think there are certainly structural things within U.S. soccer that always need to be sort of scrutinized, always need to be, they need to always have an open mind about sort of making those course changes. I think there's an argument that when it comes to youth, uh, sort of the youth development, they've actually been doing a better job with that over the course of the last five or 10 years. And hey, I think Jurgen Klinsmann actually deserves some credit for this. It, it is not exclusively him, but I think he deserves some credit for this, that certainly when you look at the U-17s uh, and the way they played in, in their World Cup, the U-21s and the way they're playing, they're, they've won their first two games of the group stage. Their final game of the group stage uh, is going to be on, on Thursday. 
you look at the way those youth programs are going, and, you, and there is like very, very legitimate reason to be pretty encouraged by the way those youth teams are playing right now. And so I think there's an argument to be made that, yeah, some of this youth stuff seems to be catching up. Some of it seems to be, seems to be getting better, and there's no secret as to why. This corresponds very profoundly with both U.S. soccer and MLS clubs putting a ton more money into youth academies, primarily MLS youth academies, that are starting to churn out players on a regular basis. The majority of the players on that U-17 team, on that U-20 team, are now associated either with a, 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 an MLS youth academy or with an MLS first team. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think there are arguments to be made that's getting better. Does that mean that, uh, that U.S. soccer has figured it out and it's going to be fine now? Of course not. Does that mean there doesn't need to be more investment? There absolutely does. This is always something that they need to address. Pay for play is a serious issue. And finding a way uh, to make sure that we're, we're, we're creating an equitable opportunity for more uh, youth players to get into youth programs, to get good quality coaching, that's another big issue. Uh, and, and, and so, I mean, I could go on for minutes, hours uh, about this kind of structural stuff. And, and does it need to be scrutinized and addressed? Yes, but I think there's a real danger here, and, and I'll want to know what you think about this. I think there's a real danger here in sort of over-revolutionizing from this. Look, the reality is, four years ago, Mexico would have been in this exact position if Graham Zussi hadn't bailed him out, right? And whereas the United States is sort of in a transitional period from one now aging out golden generation, if you want to, you know, I mean, sort of surge of talent into one that's just frankly, just not ripe yet. Uh, and, and kind of has a little bit of a developmental hole. And, and I think that those issues have been well discussed over the course of the last few weeks. Four years ago, Mexico was actually in the prime of what was supposed to be one of their sort of surges of talent. Chicharito was in his prime. Uh, John, Jonathan Dos Santos was tremendous. You could go down the line of that 2014 Mexico team, and it was extremely talented. Going into that World Cup qualifying cycle, it should have been an absolute breeze for them because they were unquestionably one of the most talented teams in CONCACAF. And they blew it. At least they almost did. They would have blown it if it hadn't been for the United States bailing them out uh, and, and getting the kinds of breaks that the U.S. didn't last night. And, and, and it's not that Mexico was in any sort of program, you know, killing crisis. It's not that Mexico w w was fundamentally defunct uh, and that they needed big revolutionary changes. They just sort of blew it. And, 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 and ultimately, they came and they, they put together a good World Cup campaign. They played well in the World Cup. They've been a, a good team now over the course of the next four years. And I think if you were to look at the U.S. soccer landscape as a whole and say it is entirely barren, you would be that that would be completely foolish. There are there is plenty of talent right now, even in sort of the the relative downswing uh, that that sort of the prime player age talent is in. There is plenty of talent uh, to qualify for the World Cup. There's even a good amount of talent to have a, an honest shot at getting through the goal the group stage in, in the World Cup. And so I I don't think this is something where we have to look at U.S. soccer and say. It is bereft of direction. They need to sort of tear it all down and start from the beginning. Uh, but, you know, I, I, and, and I think there is a good amount of this that you could simply say, look, this is so bad because it was so badly mismanaged over the course of the last four years. Yes, there are structural issues. 
Yes, there are things the U.S. soccer needs to improve upon. That is the same today as it was last week, as it'll be next month, as it was a year ago. That hasn't changed at all. But what has changed is, is just the stunning mismanagement of this World Cup qualifying cycle. Uh, and that is something uh, that, although it'll be very painful to miss the World Cup uh, next summer, that is something that, that can be changed and, and that can be remedied in the short and medium term. Do you think that's sort of too, uh, a too Pollyanna-ish look at this? Yes, acknowledge that there are structural issues, but to say, look, the, the, this isn't a multi-generational disaster. It is a single generational disaster uh, that we can expect to be remedied by the time the next World Cup qualifying uh, cycle turns up. Yeah, I think, as you said, there was a major concern that if you just blow it all up, and then you're taking what already works and what could potentially lead to having a good cycle next time around and putting the entire program in a situation where it takes years, if not decades, to rebuild so I, I agree that you don't just blow everything up. I, I think you look at some specific things at the youth level that need to improve in terms of putting more money into the development, expanding the MLS academies and trying to give as much of an equitable chance for players of all backgrounds so you can have the greatest talent pool possible uh, coming into the youth system. I, I think you need to do targeted changes at, at the youth level to to enhance that over the next two, three, four years. And I think you can make a dent in that aspect. I, I agree with you that the biggest problem here is the mismanagement of the senior national team, the direction they, they were going uh, through this entire qualifying. I, I, I think when you said forward thinking that that is absolutely uh, the biggest problem here. Why, why they had players that were never going to be factors or never should have been factors in 2018 competing in so many meaningful games during the cycle. I think now you have to seriously, along with changing the management, which we both agree needs to happen, you then need to move on from the players that aren't going to factor in 2022. So Clint Dempsey and Tim Howard, I don't really see the use of bringing them back in very much, if at all, anymore. You move on from them. You give players chances that maybe aren't ready for the senior national team, but you think with the some meaningful games under their belt against top competition are going to develop quickly and kind of speed up their process process. So they get ready for 2022. So I, I think that is the biggest thing focusing on what went wrong in terms of the management at this level and, and getting the new crop of players into this senior national team as quick as possible. So you can speed up the development heading into 2022 and, and get the right forward thinking mindset into into the national team but at the same time i do think without blowing it all up there are targeted things that need to happen in, in the developmental pipeline to to enhance the players that they are coming up through u.s soccer for both this next cycle and the next generation yeah i agree uh okay that's enough of that for now we both sort of got our rants in um and yeah that was that was cathartic that was nice. Uh, let's do predictions. It is that time. Uh, let's start Thorns v. Courage in the NWSL final. Kind of a big game uh, in case you missed like the first half of this podcast. Uh, what do you think is going to happen, Jamie B? Thorns v. Courage. Uh, that's one thirty on Saturday. I, I think this is going to be a very hard-fought game. I, I think this is going to be a back-and-forth match not a ton of opportunities for either team so these are, these are the two best defenses in the league they they both have the attacking talent as well but 
if you just look at straight numbers, these are the two best defenses in the league. So I, I'm predicting a 1-0 uh, win for the Thorns. They're going to come out on top, and Tobin Heath is going to be the player that gets the game-winning goal, just like she did in 2013. I am going to go 3-1. Thorns. Uh, but I, I, I am going to caveat this in that I don't think it's going to necessarily be sort of Thorns domination uh, by any means. I, I don't think the Thorns are going to sort of run away with this one and jump out to a 3-0 lead and it's all going to be academic. I think that's going to be a competitive 3-1, uh, you know, sort of a closer version of, of what we saw last weekend in the semifinal. And that, that if, if the Thorns finally do get to that point, it'll be because they put one away late to sort of uh, get it going. And I'm going to say Haley Rosso. Is gonna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the hot hand. Haley Rosso is going to come away with a brace. Uh, Timbers versus D.C. United. What do you say? I, I think the Timbers are going to get it done. They're going to clinch this weekend and put themselves in a, a position where they could potentially uh, finish in a top-two spot uh, in the final weekend of the season. Um, obviously, I'm very wary about clinching and Burt's into into things right now with the national team, but I do, I'm going to keep my faith. That the Timbers are going to get it done. Uh, 2-0 Timbers win over a not very good DC United team. Uh, and Blanco is going to start getting hot. He's going to have a goal and assist. Sebastian Blanco goal and an assist. And I've been really hard on a guy, so I'm going to throw him a bone here. I'm going 3-0 on this game. I think the Timbers uh, will, and uh, as they should, uh, come in and, and dispense with DC United pretty handily. Not a lot to play for, which you especially seem to like see sort of come out when when a team sort of travels across country. Uh, so I think the Timbers are, are, are going are, are gonna to have a pretty easy time with this one. And I'm going to say Darren Maddox is going to go ahead and get himself a goal. I was pretty hard on him. For good reason, uh, over the, for the San Jose game and and his play over the course of the last couple of months, I, I've been unimpressed. But I think he gets one here uh, and and helps the Timbers go on to that three zero win. Uh, not a lot going on in MLS fantasy, so we'll wait to update that uh, until next week because of the the international break and all of that. So that's the end of the podcast. Thanks once again to Richard Farley for coming on, uh, and, and of course thanks to all of you for sending in questions and for tuning in. Uh, that's Jamie B. Goldberg. I'm Chris Reifer. You can catch us every week on OregonLive.com and Stumptown Footy. You can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, enjoy the NWSL final on Saturday. Uh, hopefully, I say hopefully as, you know, the, the, the blogger, uh, hopefully some celebration on Sunday and then a, a nice Timbers DC United game to cap it all off. Uh, so enjoy all of that. We'll be back next week to talk, to talk about it all. And until then, as always... Take care.